Before you listen to this podcast, you can subscribe to The Critic magazine with the current offer of five issues for just £10. Head to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk, to subscribe today. Hello and welcome to the second episode of The Critic Narrated, where we bring you a selection of articles from our print issues read aloud by their authors. In this episode, Reverend Marcus Walker, Rector of Great St. Bart's in the City of London, reads his piece, Resurrect Forgiveness. Hannah Betts narrates her column, Time for Coco, and Patrick Galbraith reads his column in Country Notes, this week entitled, Do the Right Thing. And so, from the sounding board column, Resurrect Forgiveness, written and now read by Reverend Marcus Walker. In China, they have rewritten the story of the woman taken in adultery. It's among Christ's most iconic parables, but the Chinese Communist Party have creatively gone to the trouble of improving it. It begins the way we would expect. The crowd wanted to stone the woman to death as per their law. But Jesus said, let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Hearing this, they slipped away one by one. But then it takes an unexpected twist. When the crowd disappeared, Jesus stoned the sinner to death, saying, I too am a sinner, but if the law could only be executed by men without blemish, the law would be dead. This surprising retelling comes from a summary of Christian teaching published for secondary schools on the subject of professional ethics and law, and it tells an interesting story, not so much about Christianity, which it gets entirely wrong, but about the world the Chinese and so many in the West are creating, a world where forgiveness is unwelcome. Forgiveness is at the core of Christianity. When you scrape away everything else, a very good summary of Christians is that we are forgiven, forgiving sinners. Forgiveness is at the heart of our faith. The forgiveness of our sins wrought by Christ, the clear condition in the Lord's Prayer as we pray that we might be forgiven as we forgive those who trespass against us. We're not always good at forgiveness, of course. Our history is marked by grim milestones as Christians have criminalized certain sins, even punishing some by death. Social ostracism has been a hallmark of the good Christian, while institutions set up ostensibly to care for those who have fallen end up causing incredible harm to those incarcerated there. The fact that Christians are bad at forgiveness does not take away from the fact that we are absolutely bound to forgive. It is written all the way through the New Testament, and Christ probably says more about that than anything else. It has filtered down, albeit imperfectly, to the cultures and societies built on a Christian foundation. And it is dying. If you want the canary in the coal mine for the death of Christianity in the West, it isn't church numbers falling, or sexual immorality, or anything like that. It is witnessing the absolute absence of forgiveness in the new morality emerging from the early 21st century. Footballers hauled before tribunals for things they wrote as 14-year-olds, well before they had either reasonable understanding of what they were saying, or any obligation to their future employer. Morality retrospectively imposed by HR departments and reputation management consultants. 
academics, authors, journalists, Tesco workers, made unemployed and finding themselves unemployable for comments made in haste and repented at leisure. I'm not talking about the situations where someone has said something that is contested but unpopular, where their cancellation should be egregious in any free society, but those who have said actually stupid or hurtful things, the kind of tweaks that make you wince when you read them, the situations where HR departments and communications experts will look at the CEO seriously and say that it is imperative that an example be made of the malefactor. Perhaps at its heart is the certainty that the wheel of fortune will never spin round and impale me on its spike. At least, that would be the most obvious reading. Judge not, lest as you judge, so shall you be judged, leaves you perfectly free to administer the worst judgments in the world if you think your hands are clean enough when hauled to account yourself. But I don't think that's actually what's going on. Returning to China might be instructive. The horror of the reworking of Jesus' words and actions towards the woman taken in adultery might obscure another outrage, that Christ says that he too is a sinner. But if the law could only be executed by men without blemish, the law would be dead. So what is going on? At best, it is the knowledge that if I, corrupt as I might be, do not denounce that other person, then no one will be cancelled and the world will not become a better place. At worst, it is the hope that if we can direct attention onto another person's sin, everyone might not notice our own. The knowledge that we are sinners and might be dragged down ourselves has always been a great motivator for denunciation, and denunciation is the spirit of our age. But still, from the deep recesses of our culture, comes a cry from a lonely hill, from a cancelled man on a bloodied cross, that reminds us all that no matter how hard we try to avoid it, we have been forgiven. And no matter how much we resent it, we are called to forgive. And that the world is better for it. And that this is written far deeper into our culture than today's bitter gall. And that means that this cry will be heard long after today's Twitter mobs have fallen silent. Now, Hannah Betts on fashion with Time for Coco. Style. Time for Coco. Hannah Betts pays homage to the ever-chic Chanel. It's a funny old time for clothes. I mean, it's a funny old time for everything. However, fashion continues to have the stuffing knocked out of it. Guestimates have been hazarded that, after 18 months sofa-bound, about half of us have begun to leave the house. And even these dashing adventurers may feel that they have more than enough clobber in which to do so. As the nation's lemmings reject formality... Witness M&S's decision to drop suits from 144 of its 254 clothing outlets. So its modish outliers are embracing structure, heritage and tradition as a means of semaphoring rebellion. 
We see this in the preppy looks usurpation of streetwear this autumn. Resale site The Real Real reporting searches for Ralph Lauren up 238%. We the critic made this happen ob with my June column on all things penny loafer. And one can see how garments of quality that will endure might take flight at a time of economic uncertainty when fast fashion feels intolerably passé. For me, this has meant a fixation with Chanel. Still, let's be clear, there has never been a time when I haven't been fixated by Chanel. However, House Ambassador Kira Knightley crystallised matters when she revealed that, during lockdown, she had daily sported its couture. We have a trampoline in our garden and decided we were only allowed to wear dresses on it. I put on red lipstick every day and every bit of Chanel that I have in my cupboard and my daughter Edie had Chanel ribbons plaited into her hair. This, my friends, is how to live. If you haven't heard of Chanel, then there's not much I can do for you. Gabrielle Coco Chanel, 1883-1971, was a moderniser. Chopper of hair, shortener of skirts, unleasher of ankles, freer of waists, crosser of dress and bronzer of skins. She was no less a modernist, with avant-garde flirtations, many of them literal, with Cocteau, Picasso, Apollinaire and Stravinsky and co-creator of the supremely modernist Chanel No. 5, a bouquet sans blooms. Chanel was also a structuralist, supplying a system, like a language, the individual components of which only have meaning as part of that whole. So, yes, she gave us the little black dress, transplanted from being the orphan, nun and maid's habit to the uniform of the elegant. But also, when she relaunched her label in 1954 after a 15-year hiatus, the septuagenarian locked down the signatures that came together as her look. All hail the tweed jacket, quilted bag, chain belt, two-tone pumps, double C logo, black satin bow, camellia and ropes of pearls, plus a constant pulse between androgynous simplicity and papal baroque. It was the Americans who confirmed her status as fashion's 20th century icon. Her 1950s take on the 1930s once again felt modern yet timeless, free-spirited in contrast with Dior's corseted and constricted new look. Chanel wanted women to move, be empowered. Her tweed jacket epitomised this ease. It's hem perfectly weighted with a brass chain to hang perfectly, yet light, free-necked, sans stiffening, supple enough to be able to swing the arms and thrust fists into pockets, teamed with a hand-freeing shoulder bag and shoes one could stride about in. Three decades later, in 1983, post-structuralist Karl Lagerfeld relaunched the brand with fabulous postmodern aplomb, taking his predecessor's codes 
and making them the world's most covetable symbols. Since then, however resplendent the pastiche, there has never been a moment of Burberry-esque overkill. Chanel is baissé bégé and cool, aspirational and inspirational. From royalty to rappers, everyone wants to be branded with double C's. In achieving this feat, the late Lagerfeld made Chanel a shorthand for style itself. My wardrobe boasts jacket homages from Zara and Mango, Hobbs and L.K. Bennett, Alice and Olivia and The Fold. This summer I snapped up the latter's silver-flecked Sackville knitted tweed. This autumn it offers the Verena. Perhaps this homage may extend to adding the odd CC brooch or corsage, perhaps not. For those not able to throw four and a half thousand to ten thousand pounds at a current design, might avail themselves of a vintage version via Huey, Arch Label Agency, or Vestia Collective from between five hundred to six thousand pounds. The Lesage blazer I awarded myself for my 50th birthday is monochrome, striped, with Chantilly lace accents. It issues from 2004, when Lagerfeld was preoccupied by black and white, the relationship between the masculine and the feminine, and the juxtaposition of severity and frivolity. As such, it is the ultimate expression of both Chaneldom and Betstam. And finally, Patrick Galbraith on Country Notes and Do the Right Thing. Do the right thing. Shoots must be places of buzzing biodiversity. As I peered down at the stuffed pheasants, I could feel him watching me. Fingers curled round his rolled-up cigarette. I'd say it'll all be over in your lifetime, shooting, what with no demand for the carcasses. I looked up from the taxidermy, all of it Benny's work, and told him I wasn't so sure. There is demand for game, but too many birds are released. Eyes half-closed, he smoked the rest of his fag in one deep draw, then glanced down to the radio, playing away next to two Victorian bitterns. It wasn't clear whether the old master taxidermist was enjoying Rita Aurora's 2012 electro-pop hit anywhere, but in truth, nothing was very clear at all. He'd been pretty straight when I phoned that he didn't want me to come. When I turned up, his wife had said he wasn't in, then a few minutes later he appeared and told me everything. All about the night jars, the songbirds in his garden, why you'll never get a perfect duck, and how different it all was when he was a boy and there were still red squirrels in Norwich. In the end, he wouldn't take 200 for the small bittern. No good, he said, shaking his head. That'd be no good at all. I was there for the best part of an hour. And when I left, I almost got to the gate before he called after me. You look after yourself. It would be wrong to say that when I turned round, he looked cheerful, but his face had softened, and I started to think that maybe he didn't hate me. A fortnight later, I was tucked in beneath the willows on the edge of my pond. It was the first Saturday in September, summer was fading, and bats were on the wing, casting shadows. I'd been watching the pond all summer. During lockdown, when our world was shut up, it was a locus of life and joy and death. The geese hatched first, 
back in April, and two brews of mallard followed. As happens every year, marauding crows picked off half of them, but the birds that escaped their bloody beaks grew and grew until one morning I went down and they'd flown. I was thinking of Benny's prognosis for the future of shooting when the first duck swung round in front of me, dropping through the branches of a large beach before cutting back into the wind to land. I was too slow, but Jack, my neighbour, sent it tumbling. Over the next half hour, as the light went and the sky turned grey, three more ducks descended and another was shot. The following morning I sat plucking on the stone dike outside my house. While the feathers drifted across the dewy grass, I wondered if they were early migrants or if they were homebred birds and I'd seen them first as ducklings swimming along after their mother. I'd smiled then as I'd watched her calling her babies into the reeds and I'd smiled too the previous evening as Jack's young spaniel swam out beneath the moon to retrieve the birds floating on their backs. Some people will always seek to have shooting banned, but most of those who truly know the natural world recognise the many benefits of people creating habitat in order to harvest a sustainable surplus of whatever it is that thrives there. If 10 ducks breed on my pond, I have a pretty good idea of how many I can shoot. Up and down the country, there are patches where game and wildfowl are similarly cherished, where woodland is managed and wetland is created. They are places loved by those who understand that if you want to take, you must also give. It would be wrong to suggest shoots putting down reared pheasants, as is common across much of the countryside, can't also foster brilliant conditions for all sorts of wildlife. But such places have to be honest. Are they maintaining scrub and planting swathes of sustenance for the likes of linnets, yellowhammers and turtle doves? Or are they flooding the land with game birds and contributing to a situation where more is shot than the meat-eating public will ever consume? If I had 50 pence for every time I've heard the words, it's complicated when the role of shooting and conservation is being discussed. I would head back to Benny's and buy the bigger bitten. It's not hard. Shoots, whether they're as diminutive as my wet rushy corner or as sparkling as Sandringham, simply need to ensure they make their patch a more buzzing and biodiverse place than it would be if the sport ceased. It's up to those who shoot, collectively, to decide whether they want it to endure. Done right, there's no reason shooting can't be at the heart of our green rural future, but if it swells and swells, it will eventually go bang, as sure as Corvids will return next spring to kill my ducklings. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, why not subscribe to have the magazine delivered to your door? Subscribe today with the current offer of five issues for £10 by heading to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk. 